Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Noah lived for 350 years after the flood, nearly 128,000 days. And out of all those days, this is the one we're told about in Scripture. It seems an odd choice to include. But up to this point, Noah has been presented to us as a flawless character. He's righteous and steadfast, heroic and exemplary. At a time when wickedness reigned supreme on the face of the earth, Noah led his family in obedience to the Lord. We can only imagine how foolish he looked to his neighbors, building a gigantic ark in a land surrounded by rivers, not oceans. And yet he did so, nonetheless. And once he was vindicated by the flood, he had to endure that trial for a year. And then he came out of the ark, not bitter, but with gratitude. And he immediately led his family in worship. If you removed verses 20 through 27 from chapter 9, you might wonder if Noah was the seed of the woman promised back in chapter 3, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the Christ figure that would save mankind. But alas, this passage makes it clear that even Noah wasn't perfect. Now, sometime after the ark, Noah began to be a man of the soil, a farmer, like the first man, Adam. And we're told that he planted a vineyard. So, so far, so good. There's nothing wrong with a vineyard. Vineyards throughout the Bible are a sign of God's blessing. In fact, the prophet Isaiah depicted the nation of Israel as a vineyard, carefully planted and cultivated by God. And it's an apt metaphor for Israel was, and still is, a land of vineyards. But Noah didn't just plant a vineyard. He also enjoyed the fruit of the vineyard in the form of wine. And on at least one occasion in his 950 years of life, he overindulged on that wine to the point of drunkenness. Now, some commentators, uncomfortable with the idea of righteous Noah getting drunk, attribute this incident to his ignorance. They suggest that Noah didn't know what he was doing and accidentally invented wine and drank too much, not knowing what it would do. But the text never suggests that he invented wine. In fact, archaeologists have identified traces of wine in the residue of terebinth resin found in pottery dating to 6,000 BC in the northern mountains of Iran. So wine had been discovered before the flood. And Jesus seems to allude to that as an illustration of the coming judgment. He said they were eating and drinking until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. But Noah was an old man, 500 something years old at this point. He knew what he was doing. And it wasn't easy. You know, making wine is a long process and it requires some skill. 
It can take a full three years to get from the initial planting of a grapevine through the first harvest. And the first vintage might not be bottled for another two years after that. The problem in this passage isn't that Noah drank wine. Wine gladdens the heart. Jesus produced gallons upon gallons of wine at a wedding. The problem with wine and other alcoholic beverages is when you drink too much and you lose your faculties and judgment, when you become unable to protect and help others, when it impairs your ability to be faithful and obedient to the Lord, when it reduces you to an embarrassing fool, a fool who passes out naked and uncovered. It's shameful. Noah was in a shameful state. Remember back in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? One of the first things they realized was that they were naked. And because they were naked, they were ashamed. Noah had lost his dignity by drinking so much. And he was too drunk to fix the problem himself. He was passed out in a compromising situation. But Noah's sin of drunkenness is not the focus of this passage. It forms the background. The focus is on the contrast in behavior of his sons. Noah's youngest son, Ham, was the one who discovered his father drunk and passed out naked in his tent, looking like a fool. And rather than protecting his father's dignity and honor, Ham went and told his two brothers about what he saw. Now, before we explore deeper what just happened, keep in mind that Ham was at least 100 years old and had four children of his own at this point. Though Ham's son Canaan is the only one mentioned in this passage, chapter 10 tells us of his other children and their descendants. Canaan was Ham's youngest child. We don't know how much time has passed since they've been off the ark, but it's possible that even Ham's children were adults at this point. Another part of the context that's important to keep in mind is the simple fact that every single person alive on the earth descended from Noah. Noah is the patriarch of patriarchs. He is the head of the family, the head of the state, the head of all economic activities, and the head of the religious life of the entire world. He was the oldest man alive and the one to whom most honor and respect is owed. But Ham clearly despised his father. He laughed at him. He couldn't wait to expose the sin of his father, the shamefulness of his father, to his brothers. By telling Shem and Japheth to come and see how foolish their father was, he was undermining the authority of Noah. Though the Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet, he was breaking the Fifth Commandment, the first of the commandments with a promise attached to it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honoring your parents leads to the blessing of a long life. Dishonoring them, as Ham did, would naturally lead to the opposite. Let me ask you, teenagers, How often do you make fun of your parents to your friends? How often do you complain about them? Do you tease or play pranks on them that provoke them to anger? It's far too common for young people to roll their eyes with disgust and show contempt for their parents and to disrespect their authority by doing what they forbid. Of course, this isn't unique to youth. 
young adults, upon having children, begin to formulate their own ways of doing things which can make them critical of how their parents live their lives. You know, some thoughts should just remain in the head, but once they're expressed, unless it's done with love and grace and maturity, those critical words often bring dishonor and shame. Honoring your parents is difficult in the later years of life as well, when the needs of your parents are greater, when their cognitive faculties decline and their physical bodies deteriorate. Even then, the Lord wants us to honor our parents. Now, when you genuinely love your parents, honor comes naturally. For example, say your parents are in the hospital. It's hard for someone to maintain their dignity when they're weak and wearing a hospital gown. Sometimes the gown shifts and body parts aren't properly covered. Of course, you could ignore it because it's awkward to bring up. But I imagine the more likely thing you would do is fix it. Adjust their clothing for them to save them embarrassment. It's natural to preserve the honor of those you love. Now, in that same scenario, can you imagine the offense and audacity of someone who would take a picture of their parents, hospital garment askew, covered in tubes, hair disheveled, and post it to their social media feed to make fun of them? Uh, It would be the photographer, not the subject, that would be the fool in that situation. Noah's drunkenness was a shame-inducing event, but Ham, who happened to discover it, could have saved his father the embarrassment, but that's not what he did. He told his brothers. He was confessing a sin that wasn't his to confess, which is just gossip. Now, to be sure, there are times when you ought to confess the sin of a parent. Those are the worst of sins, various forms of of abuse and harm. But the difference is whether you're confessing their sin with tears as a cry for help, or if you're doing so in mockery and pride. When you consider verse 24, which says that Noah came to know what his youngest son had done to him, it makes it clear that Ham didn't just tell his brothers as if he needed help to solve the problem. He was openly mocking his father, bringing Noah shame. But the Bible preserves Noah's dignity by omitting the words of Ham and not dwelling on his actions. The sin of Ham is told in one brief sentence. Greater attention is brought to the actions of his older brothers. Now, Shem and Japheth could have ignored the situation. They didn't need to go and see it for themselves. But then again, someone else might come across their father in that state. There were several grandchildren, perhaps even great-grandchildren, who might have stumbled upon Noah, their chief patriarch, in that condition. And so Shem and Japheth immediately sought to remedy the situation. They took a garment. The text literally reads, the garment, which would suggest that a garment was already near Noah, which Ham could have used to solve the problem immediately if he had wanted to. And the brothers laid the garment on their shoulders and walked backwards to cover their father without seeing his shame. Now, this ritual seems a bit strange, but imagine if you unintentionally walked upon someone naked. Perhaps you have. It's embarrassing for both parties. The brothers, knowing what they would be walking into, were minimizing the embarrassment as much as possible. 
and by doing so, they preserved Noah's dignity. And we're told explicitly that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, I already mentioned that nakedness is connected to shame in the story of Adam and Eve, but also later in Genesis, Joseph said to his brothers when they came to Egypt for grain, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Well, there, nakedness is used metaphorically as weakness. Shem and Japheth were careful to avoid seeing Noah's weakness. And just as the Lord covered the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve with garments of skin, Shem and Japheth honored their father by covering his nakedness. This incident, highlighting shame and honor, results in the only recorded words of Noah. So far, he has been a silent, obedient figure. But now he opens his mouth to offer a curse and a blessing. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, right away, there's something surprising about this. Why is Noah cursing Canaan and not Ham? Well, Ham is Noah's youngest son, and Canaan is Ham's youngest son, so perhaps Noah is wishing for a similar fate of humiliation to befall Ham. It's also possible, indeed highly probable, that Noah knew a thing or two about his grandson Canaan. Perhaps Canaan's character had already begun to show itself. On top of these reasons, he's speaking prophetically. In the course of history, Canaan will indeed be a servant of servants to his brothers. The name Canaan literally means humble or subdued. But for a time, his descendants ruled in the land of Canaan, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived as servants among the Canaanites. But in the course of time, after the Israelites were brought out of Egypt as a nation, they were led into the land of Canaan by Joshua. The Canaanite conquest was the Lord's delayed judgment on the Canaanites' wickedness. There are a variety of pagan practices, such as child sacrifice and many other perversions, but it was a delayed judgment promised to Abraham over 400 years earlier, and even before that, it was suggested here by Noah. This prophecy regarding Canaan has long been fulfilled. The next prophecy is spoken to Shem, though it's directed to God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Starting with chapter 12, the rest of Genesis is about a few patriarchs that descended from Shem. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons. And then the plot of the entire Old Testament revolves around the descendants of Shem, King David, and ultimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, as promised in Genesis chapter 3, which went through Seth, also went through Shem, and all the way to Jesus. But there are lots of other people in the Bible. A lot of the notorious ones come from Ham, the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And then there are the Japhethites, who are all over the place. The blessing spoken by Noah over Japheth was that God would enlarge his descendants, and indeed he does. They spread all over the earth. The blessing to Japheth includes a fascinating promise. 
and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, come from Shem. The Old Testament was written in the languages developed by the people of Shem. But what does it mean that the people of Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem? This is a picture of the gospel. One of Japheth's sons, Javan, was the father of the Greeks. The language of the New Testament was developed by the line of Japheth. The Gentiles grafted into the promises of God through Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this blessing upon Japheth. But what about Ham and the rest of his children? Well, this is where it's important to not make too much out of genealogy. As Jesus said, don't presume that because you have Abraham as your father that you are saved. The Pharisees were descendants of Shem and many of them rejected Jesus. Also, the Moabites and Ammonites came from Lot and the Ishmaelites came from Abraham. And of course, there's no shortage of apostasy within the nation of Israel. And outside of Israel, you had people like Rahab. She was a Canaanite prostitute, yet she was grafted into the people of God. The Ethiopian eunuch who returned to his land with the gospel was likely a descendant of Ham. And Jesus encountered a Canaanite woman and admired her faith. On the day of Pentecost, people from all over the known world heard the gospel in their own language. We don't need to worry about whether we're Japhethites, Hamites, or Shemites because the gospel is available to all. What we need to worry about is sharing the good news of the gospel with all people. Just as we shouldn't presume upon our genealogy for salvation, we shouldn't rely on church membership alone. Because not all people who are members of a church are saved. Because we can't judge the heart when we accept people into membership. We can only hear a profession of faith. Now, we should find comfort in our church membership because it gives us the assurance that other people believe that we belong to God. But we shouldn't presume upon our church membership as the basis of our salvation because that level of assurance can only be found in believing the promise of God, that salvation is freely offered to you through Jesus Christ. You must have faith to accept that, which is a gift of God, ordinarily given to those who identify with his church. And it is strengthened through the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacrament, which is only rightfully done through his church. We now have the opportunity to celebrate our inclusion in the people of God by faith in Jesus through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 